Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. Property prices are rising at a staggering rate. They were up more than 15% in March. But are we reaching a peak? And is there a crash to come? Boris Johnson spends the day in Northern Ireland trying to convince the political parties to stop the storm and stalemate. But are they listening? We cannot have power sharing unless there is a consensus. That consensus doesn't exist. I'm in the business of rebuilding that consensus in Northern Ireland. Also tonight, it's the court case everyone is talking about. We have the very latest from London, from the Wagatha Christie trial. Do get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. First tonight, a 38-year-old woman has been found guilty of the murder of two-year-old toddler Santina Cawley in a Cork apartment in July 2019. Karen Harrington, with an address at Lakelands Crescent, Mahan in County Cork, had denied the charge but was convicted following a unanimous jury verdict. Senior Gardy reacted to today's verdict outside the court. So the murder of Santina Cawley has had a profound impact on Santina's extended family and across the community. On Garda Shikana notes the decision the court has made today in the conviction and sentence of Karen Harrington for the murder of Santina. The early provision of statements, CCTV, social media clips, doorbell cameras and cooperation with house-to-house inquiries greatly aided this investigation. I would like to particularly thank the dedicated investigation team who have worked on this case for almost three years. Justice for Santina was always the ultimate goal for the team since her murder on the 5th of July 2019. This was a particularly emotive case for the members that attended the scene and the investigation team, many having children of a similar age. Santina was always in our thoughts. We would like to again publicly express our sympathies to Santina's family and Angara Shikana will continue to support them as they continue to grieve for Santina. Detective Inspector Daniel Cullen there. Now, for anyone who has bought a house or is in the process of buying, the next 30 seconds will in no way surprise you. Property prices are rising and rising fast. New statistics today show they rose by more than 15% in March. And it isn't just a Dublin problem, far from it. Go out into the country and it's even worse. But is this going to continue or are we heading towards a peak? Well, to discuss this further, I'm joined in studio by Harry McGee, political correspondent with the Irish Times, Owen O'Brien, TD for Sinn Féin, Niall Collins, Minister of State at the Department of Further and Higher Education, Research, Innovation and Science, and Austin Hughes, economist at KCB Bank, 
And I'm also joined on Skype by Kieran Mulqueen from the Instagram page, Crazy House Prices. You're all very welcome to the programme. And we'll start with you, Harry, because look, whether you're <coughs> looking to rent in this country or buy a house, the last couple of weeks, there has been no good news for you when it comes to prices. They are going one way only. Yeah, the Instagram account, uh, Crazy House Prices, does what it says on the tin. And that's been the case not just this month, but it's been the case for the last few years. I think house prices have been on the increase for seven or eight years now, if not more, perhaps even since about 2014 and 2015, without any respite and despite so many policies from so many governments in relation to tackling this issue, none of them have seemed to make any impact in relation to that. And then allied to that and compounding that, we have inflation running at 7% per annum, uh, according to the latest CSO figures. Uh, we have the prospect of interest rates rising later on this year. So the news on all fronts is very, very bad at the moment. And it has been in Dublin, we know that, a 12% increase. But outside of the capital, the average is 17% for house prices and it's been much higher in some counties. Yeah, I think along the border region, for example, it's been particularly high in, in <coughs> recent months. And maybe that reflects that there's been some demographic shifts where some people are moving home to where they were brought up. Uh, in uh, places like, for example, Roscommon Town have proven to be very popular uh, other centres around the country where people are moving back with young families. And when they move back, they, of course, are putting pressure on an already squeezed market. And that the effect of that is that prices are beginning to increase. Uh, Austin Hughes, in terms of those price hikes, you had some interesting figures because the heat you were saying is coming not just from new bills, actually. It's really coming from people bidding on existing properties. Yeah, uh, in March, house prices rose by 15% overall. But for new house bills, the increase was 6%. And for existing houses, it was 17%, which tells you where the demand pressure is most significant. It, it reflects the fact that you do have a friend in some parts of the market with people uh, trying to outbid each other. And in other areas, people since the pandemic are looking to buy in areas where there hasn't been building probably for the last 15 years. So it's all that sort of pressure now is really coming home to roost. I should add, it's just not in Ireland. In Australia, over the last 20 years, house prices have gone up nearly four times as fast. Sweden, three times as fast. UK, twice as fast. So rising house prices are a real problem in Ireland, but it isn't a unique problem to this country. What is interesting, Austin, I think, is the psychology of all of this, that the more you hear about house prices rising, the more you perhaps want a house yourself if you're looking to purchase. It in itself creates a demand. This has been a real problem and it's been aggravated by the pandemic. First of all, everyone was clearly aware that there was less new building uh, through the pandemic. And secondly, there was what's been called in other fora, the race for space, that people found that their home was a place not only to rest, to play, but also to work. So it placed a much greater focus on housing and add to that then, Many people were, not all, but many people were in a fortunate position to save a little bit more. So that's going into the property market. And exactly as you say, when somebody hears it, it's all we talk about. We've been talking about the property market for 
the last 30 years anyway. Uh, and, you know, in that regard, it tends to be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, both on the way up and sometimes on the way down. It creates that sense, got to get in there now. Hopefully we are going to see some calmer demand, you know, both because this current bulge related to the pandemic will ease, because interest rates will, again, temper demand a little bit, and hopefully we will see increased supply, but there's no quick way out of this problem. Um, Kieran, you set up crazy house prices, and uh, as Harry said, it does exactly what it says <coughs> on the tin. You hear from people every single day trying to buy uh, a home or an apartment or a house. What is the sentiment out there? How are people feeling right now? Yeah, that's the question I'm always asked. It's I think people have gone beyond just being fed up now. It's gotten to a point now where they're they're really considering leaving the country again. That's been a common theme in my messages for the last few weeks, especially. Um, I put a call out the other day to kind of get people's stories as I knew there'd be a good bit of media coming up. And I mean, I got I had to turn off the Google form after about 350 responses because I just can't, can't get through them all. But it's also it's it's utterly depressing reading. Um, I have some awful story stories uh, like one that stands out, especially is two doctors in Dublin and they in their 30s and have to move home because they can't afford to rent and they can't they keep getting outbid on, on houses. And I just mean, in what other generation would you have two doctors, a double income family, both doctors not being able to afford pretty much any house they like, let alone a doctor on one salary? So it's it's just people are, are really, really gone past the point of being fed up. It's, it's gotten worse than that now. Uh, are the house prices, the fact that they're rising all the time, is that putting people off? Or as Austin was saying, does it create a kind of a, a panic, a sense, look, I need to get in now because they're only going one way. It's only going to get more expensive. Yeah, that and people are delaying life milestones. You know, they're delaying having families because they're still living at home. Um, they don't want to have children while staying in the family home and they're in their mid-30s and time is running out. They just have no option. And then also the increase in rent prices and they know their mortgage will be a lot less. Um, I just want to go to the uh, politicians here, Niall. Have house prices, in your opinion, hit their peak yet? Um, I wouldn't be qualified to say if they've hit their peak. Obviously, we've acknowledged that they have been increasing for, as Harry said, a long number of years coming against a record low following the crash. But look, it's the biggest issue um, which the government is facing or one of the many big issues. And government is devoting a lot of time, as you know, in relation to the whole area of housing. We have our housing for all plan. But government must have some sense of where house prices are going, surely. Look, it's a product of supply and demand. I, I can't say for you here and now whether, I, whether, they've, whether they've peaked out what I want, the message that I want to get out is that government is really acutely aware of it. We have a lot of work going on in the whole housing space in terms of housing delivery, both social, affordable, cost rental. But there's a whole pile of work going on around the country, for example, through our local authorities where development plans are being updated and renewed, new land zonings. Uh, government is working through Irish Water to provide service land. So, uh, so there's, a lot of, there's a lot of wheels in motion in terms of enabling the, the whole supply side Huge challenges there, obviously, with, with cost inflation. We see, for example, timbers and steel have gone up anywhere between 40 and 60%. And I know Michael McGrath and government will decide on a detail in terms of addressing the cost inflation there on, on public, um, on government and public works contracts because they were heretofore fixed uh, contracts yeah. and didn't allow for, 
for inflation and mitigating against inflation. So the, the key issue here is government... Uh, so are government, the government's targets in Housing for All, are they going to be compromised this year because of those um, construction price increases? Well, it, it, we've had very strong numbers, which I think is really good. You've had about 30,000 commencements to the 12 months to March of this year. You've had about 20,000 completions. So on the supply yeah. side, the pipeline is now beginning to, to deliver. And I but think it's that's not very, having very... any effect on affordability. Well, look, it's I mean, what we got to remember here is, and I think people appreciate this point, we're coming from a standing start. There was zero housing delivery and housing output for a long, long time. And the important point here, Kira, is government is putting money into this. There's money, there's a multi-annual capital funding of €4 billion Euros for the delivery, social, affordable and to enable private uh, housing also to, to take effect, which is really, really important. Uh, Owner Bryn, we heard today... Um, House prices 2%, I think it's just over 2% off the peak of the Celtic Tiger. Do you feel a crash is coming? Do you feel these house prices are going to drop? Nobody knows. Um, at some point, that bubble is going to burst. It's just, it, it's simply not possible to say if it's this month, next year, the year after. And you see, the central problem is, is first of all, the actual number of new homes coming onto the market for people to purchase actually fell last year. And even if the government meets its target this year, its global target of public and private housing. You're talking specifically about the houses that were built that actually ended up on the open market. Absolutely. So last year it was about 5,000 new homes for people to purchase on the open market. This year, the government meets their targets. It's going to be about 6,000, 6,500. And then under their housing plan, it'll remain at that figure out to 2025, 2026. So the private supply is insufficient. But the really big problem here is this government has been in power for two years. Not a single affordable home to purchase has been delivered, delivered to date. They've only provided 60 million euros uh, to deliver about 550 uh, affordable homes this year. And in fact, some of those will come in at prices above 400,000 euros. For a decade, everybody uh, uh, from uh, independent uh, think tanks to academics to us in opposition have been calling on government to increase the direct investment to local authorities okay. and approved housing bodies to deliver thousands of affordable homes. How many affordable homes is Niall's constituency going to get a year under the government's housing plan? 50. How many are we going to get in the commuter belt? 30 to 40 a, a year in each county. Well, I think Dublin now the only get, are actually disputed Dublin, those, No, no, uh, they're, they're, the the they are the government's figures. Only 400 in our city. All right, yes, the minister, the minister will say... Well, well, it, it, it suits Owen, by the way, and you've objected to thousands of social housing projects right around this city and even in my own, in my own city and county of Limerick. And Owen, you've you got to acknowledge, from where you're coming from, you know, criticism is really hollow when you're objecting on the ground when your local area representatives are objecting on the ground to social and affordable and cost rental housing projects getting over the line. The facts are the government recognises that there's an issue here. We put money into it. I'll give you my own example. In Limerick, we have 5,500 people on the social housing list between Limerick City and County. There's about 1,100 houses in the delivery pipeline in Limerick alone. Only in the last two weeks, the local authority in Limerick advertised for expressions of interest for affordable housing in two locations, in Newcastle West and in Abbey Field in my own constituency. Okay, so now, it's happening on. I know you don't want it to happen. You, well, you'd prefer I, to talk I, it down. I want it to happen as but quickly we are delivering. as possible. The government is okay. serious about when delivering. When is that going to have an impact on house prices? It, it, well, hopefully as soon as possible. I can't say when, but all I can tell you is it's a supply issue and government is addressing the supply in as much as we can. There are factors outside of our control, which everybody understands, but we're doing everything we can. I just want to go back to this issue of what the current house prices are, because there are people out there who are bidding on houses and who have bought 
houses Austin Hughes. We've been here before, you know, Celtic Tiger prices, and we know what happened after there, after that. We're not in the credit bubble again, but do you think some sort of a, a slump or a crash is coming? I don't think there's a crash coming anytime in the very near future. But the reality is the world has become so much more unpredictable. We've had pandemics, we've had war in Europe, we've had extraordinary changes in circumstances. So no one can say never say never. You know, that's the one rule in terms of this. Um, what we do know is that house prices have risen in a lot of other countries a lot faster and been driven more by credit. In Germany, house prices have risen faster than in Ireland over the last two decades. Their population, the number of households has increased by 6%. In Ireland, it's up by 50%. Whereas, as you say, it's not driven by people borrowing more and more. The average loan size in the last year is only up about 7.5%. So it's other factors. There are risks there. The higher it goes, the, the riskier it becomes. But there is still a strong economy behind the, the Irish number. Harry? Yeah, I'm not an expert compared to my esteemed co-panellists here. But the one thing that has struck me in recent weeks was this news about um, the government offering to subvent the building of apartments, to actually put money in in order to build private apartments so that they could become in some way uh, affordable. And it just struck me while when reading about that, that there's something seriously wrong. And perhaps it's not the, the Irish model, but there's something, really, something seriously wrong with the model that, that, that a government would have to intervene in such a manner in order to make an apartment that people are going to buy privately to make it more affordable. I know that there are terms and conditions and there are rules attached, but to me there's something uh, innately uh, suspect uh, when, when something like that has to be arranged in order to make something more affordable. Uh, your colleague had an interesting piece piece uh, in the Irish Times at the weekend, Owen Burke Kennedy, he said, you know, the slump sort of was coming. He said, look, well, there is a cycle here. Boom, slump, recovery. And we're now in boom when it comes to prices. Yeah, I think that with every cycle, you know, we say we're going to learn our lessons from that. And then very, very soon, amnesia begins to kind of uh, strike in. And we just don't learn from the lessons uh, that we've unfortunately experienced in the past. Keep in mind, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have effectively been in a, a government arrangement for six years. We've been told year after year that money has been targeted, that supply is going to come on stream. And for all of those six years, house prices, rents, and levels of homelessness have all just increased time and time again. Uh, and Harry's reference to the Creek Conaha Cities uh, uh, Fund is a really interesting one. Because <clears throat> what that proposal is, is the state is going to give private developers up to €144,000 per apartment and if you read what it says on the department's website, there will be no discount on price and no affordability. Those apartments are going to cost €400,000 plus. This is and where they every... say that there's this <coughs> sort of viability gap Absolutely. between and, and what it costs to build the apartment we, and what you can we, sell the apartment We for. know what works. Today in North County Dublin, as a result of a good initiative of Dublin City Council and the O'Coolan Housing Co-op, good quality starter homes, houses and apartments have been delivered and sold at €250,000. And Niall is wrong. I mean, every time people point out the fact that year on year, this government uh, and its predecessors made things worse, they blame everybody else, right? Including spurious and dishonest claims but only, about but only the opposition. But at every level. But, but the crucial point is this. Unless the government starts to invest seriously to deliver at least okay, 4,000 affordable okay. purchase homes a year, 4,000 affordable rental homes a year, this crisis is going no. to get worse. No. And all no, we're going to get is about 500 this year alone. That's not serious. See, Owen, you, you've just said I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but you haven't said what I'm wrong about. And I haven't objected you, to any I, social I, housing I, projects you what anywhere. You're, what you're, and by the way, your party is in government in the north of Ireland where, there, where there's a housing crisis also. 
not, and, and not, anywhere, not anywhere close but to the mess fact, that you've housing, created fact, over the last housing, six years. And we haven't created a mess. We're fixing it and we put money to it and multi-annual Listen, annual listen to what Kieran just said to you. Listen to budget. the people in your but constituency. Here, uh, you, you riddle me this uh, and we talk about affordable housing. You're capping the income of people who could avail of affordable housing to 85,000 euros. So if you take a guard who's married to a teacher, a typical Irish, uh, you know, standard Irish middle class couple, here in Dublin, and they're on the midpoint in their salaries, they're earning about 87,000 euros. You're locking them out of your proposal. Well, in fact, so our housing in... for all will try and help everybody. And as I said, Kira, we're putting 4 billion euros per annum okay. into this, and we're working on a number of levels. You're pushing up house prices. You're pushing up house prices. You're pushing up rents. You're objecting to housing. You're objecting to the building of houses. I just want That's to go back to for. Uh, Harry here. Look, it's a major political issue, isn't it? We've had, what, four housing ministers and in the last six years, uh, am I right? Yeah, and four, four different plans, Rebuilding Ireland to, to Housing for All. And all of them have been earnest and all of them have tried to tackle it. And it's very complicated. I mean, there is no quick fix solution. And uh, I mean, there are extraneous factors at the moment that no government has the power uh, to deal with. But it's it just the problem just seems to be intractable. And I know that Niles had to be started from a standing start. That was 10 years ago, and we really need to start solving the housing problem within the next couple of years. All right, we're going to leave it there. My thanks to Kieran Mulqueen and to uh, Austin Hughes for coming in this evening. Harry, Owen and Niall will be staying with me as we take a look at Boris Johnson's visit to Northern Ireland to try and break the political stalemate there. It has been nearly two weeks since the Northern Ireland Assembly election and there is still no breakthrough in getting an executive up and running. Today, it was the turn of Boris Johnson to seek a compromise, the British Prime Minister meeting five political parties at Hillsborough Castle. But it won't be easy. Sinn Féin and the DUP are miles apart on how to solve the impasse. Take a look at these clips. Where we should be making progress at a time where we should and we can work together. We find ourselves now at the mercies of the DUP, fully backed by the, by the British government. It is uh, an appalling vista. We cannot have power sharing unless there is a consensus. That consensus doesn't exist. I'm in the business of rebuilding that consensus in Northern Ireland. That's what we're looking for from our government, from our Prime Minister. It's decisive action on the protocol. Harry McGee, Ona Bryn and Niall Collins are still here with me and I'm joined on Skype by Alison Morris, columnist at the Belfast Telegraph. Alison, I'm wondering what good, if any, Boris Johnson's visit did today. Well, I think what Boris Johnson was doing is he was trying to lay the groundwork for what's going to happen tomorrow. So we know that Liz Trust, the Foreign Secretary, is going to make an announcement to the Commons tomorrow in relation to the British government's proposed legislation, which is going to overrule huge parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. If what we are being led to believe through sources is true, they're going to scrap Article 7A, as they call it, which gives the European Court of Justice jurisdiction over Northern Ireland. They're going to introduce a sort of green lane, red lane system where goods that are travelling to the south through Northern Ireland um, will be checked. But those that say they're destined for Northern Ireland will not be checked. The EU have already said that's not good enough because it doesn't protect their single market and the integrity of that. And there's other um, aspects of this, the, the proposed legislation as well, that are basically going to scrap huge parts 
of the protocol unilaterally without any agreement with the EU. That's bound to have a, a backlash that comes along with it. And there is the impression, I suppose, here that this is all being done to appease the DUP who are refusing to nominate to the executive. They're refusing to nominate a deputy first minister. They refused on Friday to even nominate a speaker, which means that we can't even have a shadow assembly operating until that happens. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Boris Johnson said today to the parties in private, clearly pleased the DUP, although it wasn't enough, let's face it. They have been, you know, uh, fooled by Boris Johnson once before, twice before, possibly maybe three times before. This time, Jeffrey Donald said they need to see the legislation before they'll go back into the executive again. But you could see it clearly angered Sinn Féin. You know, at the last election, they're now returned as the largest party. But more than that, the other four, the other parties in the executive are all in agreement that the protocol needs reformed, but do not want to say it's scrapped. So three quarters of the people in Northern Ireland in the Assembly election voted for parties that are in favour of retaining the protocol. And yet we see the British government seem determined to scrap huge amounts of it. So I don't think anybody was expecting any kind of a breakthrough today, but do you think we are any closer to a resolution? I think what what will happen tomorrow may well be enough for the DUP to nominate a speaker. That at least would mean that we could have a shadow assembly, but I think that we're a long way off having a proper solution. You know, the DUP are sort of backed into a corner. They told the people who voted for them that they would not go back into the executive unless the protocol is scrapped. The protocol is not going to be scrapped. You know, even Boris Johnson has said that. They're talking about radical reform of it, but it's not going to be scrapped in its entirety. And therefore, it's difficult to know where that red line is going to sort of 
begin and end, if you know what I mean. They have to have six months until there has to be another election. I don't think the DUP are in a strong position to be going into another election. That's not what yeah. they want. And I do think that they'll be hoping that something happens, either an agreement between the EU and the British government or that the British government introduce this, this legislation unilaterally, which will sort of save face, if you like, and allow them to go back into the executive. But right now, you know, I wouldn't be thinking any of this is going to happen in the next week or two. I'm just wondering, Alison, at this point, it's two weeks on from the election. And as you say, no, no, not that much closer um, to a resolution here, to getting an assembly, to getting an executive. What is the public's, you know, moods and attitude at this point? You know, as, as journalists, when you're sitting in those election counts, it's usually to see people who are elected who are going to go straight and nominate ministers and serve. We all knew, you know, as we were sitting during those election counts, that it was unlikely there was going to be a government formed. I think as time goes on, you'll see more and more public anger. The fact is that those assembly members are still being paid, whereas, you know, the public, I think, are struggling in terms of the cost of living crisis. Our health service waiting lists are, you know, the worst in, in the UK. There's something like 300,000, more than 300,000 people on a, a waiting list just to see a consultant for the first time. Um, all of that, I think, will, will build up. The DUP have, I suppose, they could say, well, we have a mandate. This is what we went into the election for. How long is that goodwill going to last, though? You know, as time goes on and as the months tick on and people realise that the salaries are still being collected, but they won't go to work, I do think that we're heading towards probably a major renegotiation at some point about the form of government that we have here. The fact that, you know, one party can hold the rest a ransom, I don't think it's going to be acceptable, especially when you see that growth of the middle ground and the growth of alliance. They're going to have to now have their place, you know, yeah. um, given that they're now the third largest party and we have three sort of very distinct voting blocks. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people have said those who want to form a, a government, a sort of coalition of the willing, should be allowed to do so. And if they, someone doesn't want to form a government, then, well, then they should go into opposition. Um, okay. The DUP, I think, are determined to see this through as far as they can. That could maybe take us right up to that six-month period. But oh, do they want to go into another election? I think that, you know, they would lose more seats if they went into another election, either now or in a few months' time. Mm, it's, it's a risk, isn't it? All right, Alison, I just want to go back to our panel a second. Um, Harry McGee, Boris Johnson wrote a big piece in the, in the Belfast Telegraph this morning. And on one hand, he seems to be talking about, you know, this landing zone. I don't want to scrap the protocol. It can be saved. It just needs to be changed. And on the other hand, we have this legislation that we believe is going to be introduced tomorrow. What is his position? Or is that <laughs> Thank you. the $64 Thank you for million dollar question? Well, I mean, he came into Belfast today and wrote that article. And as typical Boris Johnson, it was full of chutzpah, chicanery, hyperbole and bombast. But when you come to pinning him down on his actual position, he's very elusive uh, indeed. And I think he told different things to different parties today. As Alison was saying, the DUP took some comfort for, from it. And Mary Lou MacDonald was clearly uh, angry at what she heard from him. And she had good reason to do, do it. He said he doesn't want to destroy the, the protocol. But the proposal that seems to be emanating from Westminster is doing more than just shifting the goalposts. It's actually shifting the border. The border as it exists in the Irish Sea at the moment will be moved to the actual border between the 26 counties and the six counties if they go ahead with that this... That is a scrapping, really, of the protocol. It is, it? you know, and, and it won't be anything short of that. If they go ahead with this red, lay, red lane, green lane strategy, that's tantamount to scrapping the protocol in its entirety. Oh, and what did Boris Johnson say to Mary Lou today? As Harry said, she didn't seem to be that happy afterwards. Well, I think that the central problem is he confirmed that he's pressing ahead with the announcement on the legislation uh, uh, tomorrow. We have all of that in the public domain. And it's an incredibly reckless thing to do. 
Um, and nobody's arguing that you can't make the operation of, of the protocol more efficient. Uh, the, the European Commission has made very clear through the mechanism that's uh, put in place as part of the overall Brexit agreement, there's a mechanism to make those improvements. And in fact, the European Union has clearly indicated what it needs from the British government to be able to apply some of that flexibility. Most of the problems have been resolved to date. So for Boris Johnson to come in, uh, who is the signatory of a legally binding international agreement with the European Union, uh, and to say, forget about that, forget about my legal obligations, I'm going to act unilaterally, uh, uh, and create an even greater level of uh, ill will between Britain and the European Union after all of the debacle of Brexit, uh, I think it's very, very dangerous. And, and here's the problem. <clears throat> um, uh, the consensus is very clear uh, among people in the North. People want an executive. People want a budget agreed. People want the 300 million euros uh, 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 for alleviating the cost of living crisis for families and businesses spent. People want the extra one billion euro, uh, pounds uh, that Sinn Féin and others have committed to to tackle those hospital waiting lists. But many others none of that all changed. None of that, none of that can happen if we don't have a government. And it makes no sense to say, let's punish uh, ordinary people, whether they're unionist, nationalist or other, while Boris Johnson does what he's doing with the European Union. There is no reason why you can't continue to negotiate improvements and efficiencies in, in the protocol. But let's get our MLAs working in the interests of everybody. That's what the majority of people want and the majority of parties. And this reckless kind of uh, uh, pandering to the DUP and a very reactionary element of the DUP, that isn't going to end well for anybody. All right, I want to move on because the Cabinet are to meet in the morning to rubber stamp the new and very controversial National Maternity Hospital. It follows a two-week pause on the decision to allow for time to examine the details of the move. Uh, Harry, very briefly, it looks like it is going to be rubber stamped tomorrow. Is it going to sail through? And is that going to be the end of it? The well, deal exactly it will, as it was? It will be passed, but it will sail through quite choppy waters. I think there'll be quite a lot of opposition uh, in the Doyle and in the Shannon, also within the coalition as well. One Green Party TD, Nasa Hurigan, has said that she's still unhappy uh, with the proposal and that there are issues that, that need to be clarified. But it does look like the government is going to go ahead uh, with it uh, after um, some Fine Gael ministers and Catherine Martin of the Green Party, who were the cabinet ministers who raised concerns about it a fortnight ago, seem to have their concerns uh, uh, allayed and sated. Uh, the issue of you know getting sort of further clarity on this deal. I'm looking at your watch there. It's nearly 20 to 11 on a Monday night, and this is to be signed off tomorrow. There, there will be no further clarity. No, no, they're going to go ahead with with it. There was there was um, some debate today um, in relation to this term, clinically appropriate, legally permissible, clinically appropriate. There might be some language around that. There won't be any change to any of the legal documents, but there might be some clarification in relation yeah. to what clinically appropriate actually means and its scope as such. Uh, now, is this going to happen, this addendum that we were reading about all weekend that we understood Fine Gael backbenchers were working on to sort of deal with this issue of what's clinically appropriate, is that going to happen before tomorrow or not? I, I don't think so. I think Michal Martin ruled that out today. I, look, I mean, I, I think at this stage, we've had a fair good airing for the last two weeks of the issues around this. And I think we've, we've heard from both sides of the debate and it's high time we moved on. Government and Mion yeah. Martin is very strong on delivery. That's what we, it's a huge commitment and priority within to our be fair, sorry, now to cut across you, we have had a good airing, but it's made absolutely no difference. I mean, I ultimately, agree. the concerns no, people have have been ignored. I don't agree with you. You know, you know, people have raised concerns and people have raised doubts, and we've we've heard from many people. We've heard from clinicians. We've heard from people involved in all the various stakeholder groups 
around the table. We've heard from the legal experts, we've heard uh, the Attorney General advice, the Taoiseach has spoken on it in the Dáil on many occasions. We've had people presenting before the Oireachtas Committee. At the end of the day, nobody has said, as pointed out, a difference in the level of service that would be achieved between state having freehold ownership and, and a 300-year okay. lease. I'm just wondering, why not this addendum, <coughs> if that would bring reassurance to some people? Well, you know, speaker after speaker that I've listened to have said it, it won't make any difference. Legally, what, whatever is legally permitted within the state will, will, be, will be enabled to take place there. And we, got, we just have to get on with things in this country. We can talk around issues in this country forever and ever and ever, and it will suit some people's agenda. But we, we just want to get on with it. Uh, Owen O'Brien, Sinn Féin, I think, don't think we're ever really going to support this, were they, unless it was a publicly owned hospital built on public land. Well, interesting. what clarity you got over in, the last two weeks. Interestingly, that was also the position of, of Micheál Martin previously and Leo Varadka previously uh, and Eamon Ryan previously. And there were two really interesting facts that emerged from uh, the exchange between the Vincent Hospital Group uh, and the Oireachtas Health Committee today. The first was that there is nothing preventing uh, the gifting of the land to the state, uh, nothing at all in terms of the undertakings and the obligations on the Vincent Hospital Group. But the second thing is, under questioning from David Cullinan, uh, the Vincent Hospital Group actually said that nobody had raised the issue of ownership and transfer from the government side uh, for about five years, and the that, last that, that, that was, was subsequently last, clarified on the later last, on this evening the last, the, that that was that answer last, was incorrect to committee. The, the that, last, that was incorrect. The last time I think Stephen Donnelly did say in the dial that there had been an approach. So the last time, and, 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 let me, and let me, that, the letter, and, the, the, the written let, correspondence. Let me let me make the point. Let me let me make the yeah, point. Now. But I'm just saying it was no, no. But let me make the point. The answer at committee today was the, incorrect. It wasn't incorrect. It was the last substantive the last substantive discussion between government and the Vincent Hospital Group was uh, five years ago. There was, an, there was an indirect approach from the current minister uh, to the sisters. But in fact, in the last two years... No, Michal, no, Michal, that's okay. not true. Let me, let that, me, that is let completely me, incorrect. It, it, I'm sorry. I'm just... You're, I am, you're I'm, I'm, just, I'm just conscious of time I know, but here, if, if Niall keeps interrupting me because he doesn't want people to hear, Micheál Martin has done nothing for two years to ensure... You're factually incorrect. Micheál Martin has done... Nothing. And the letter has you been published. Right. You haven't even the let letter, me finish the sentence. Yeah, but you, you're Michal, saying that Michal, Stephen Donnelly hasn't finish, approached them. Let me finish. He has. Let me finish. I'm talking about Micheál Martin. Micheál Martin has done nothing in the last two years Owned. to secure the public ownership of the land that he said he wanted. And Sinn Féin could be in government in less than three years. What are you going to do about this project? The problem is, once they do this deal, it's a legally binding deal. Tell the listeners, our viewers, the difference between the freehold and the leasehold. What difference in the level of service will the women and girls of Ireland achieve if it was under freehold or under leasehold? T tell if us. You, if there you, is no difference. I'll, I'll absolutely answer the question if you stop interrupting me now. I'm not right? interrupting you. You, you are, and you've no. continually interrupted me. There is a huge difference between, a between being a tenant of somebody else's no, land level of and, owning, and owning it outright. All right. And there are many people, including Peter Boylan, including, including eminent right. Look, uh, clinicians I just want who to have expressed your... real I just want concern. To not answering what Harry, you should, do, another... you should no, no. do is stick to your original policy Sorry, folks, and ensure the land is Harry, there was an interesting story in the, uh, I think it was in the middle of Sunday over the weekend, that um, many Finnefoilers feel that Fine Gael have been sort of purposely briefing against Stephen Donnelly, that there's been this sort of campaign to try and undermine him. Is there is there a tension and difficulty in government over this? Uh, yeah, well, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that everybody's not allowed to get you. Um, <laughs> I was talking to a few politicians from both sides today about that, and Fine Gael have denied it mm. strenuously, saying that the, the objections that were raised at Cabinet two weeks ago, or the concerns that were raised at Cabinet, were spontaneous and it wasn't concerted. 
But I, I think that Fianna Fáil ministers, particularly Stephen Donnelly, may have felt a little bit beleaguered uh, by the less than kind of enthousi enthusiastic support from Fine Gael colleagues right. at certain junctures. So I think that they may have felt that there was something else afoot. And I'll be glad here. We've run out of time, so I don't have time to come to you on this. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, there's lots more after the break. Uh, my thanks to uh, Owen Antonelle Collins. We're going to get the very latest from London on the Wagatha Christie trial as Colleen Rooney takes to the stand. It's been dubbed Wagatha Christie, a trial that has been going on for a week and caused a media sensation. Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy both arrived for the beginning of the second week, with Mrs Rooney taking the stand to explain why she accused Rebecca Vardy of leaking social media stories. Well, Virgin Media Courts reporter Deborah Naylor is in London following the trial, and earlier I began by asking her how busy it is outside of the court. Yeah, it certainly is, Kira. And listen, we were here from very early this morning to get those arrival shots, and we're here from about 8 a.m. And there's no doubt of the interest in this case. I mean, uh, journalists, photographers, cameramen, documentary crews, they were all camped outside from very early this morning. But it's very interesting because the building here behind me, the Royal Courts of Justice, where this case has been heard uh, in the High Court, in these courts, well, this uh, was built and opened by Queen Victoria in 1882. It's a really impressive building. It's a grade one listed one. When you actually go inside it, it looks like something out of Hogwarts. It's a real labyrinth type halls and on the walls, you know, you can see all the, the previous lady justices at the moment. So it's got so much history and I think there's probably some slight juxtaposition then when you actually think uh, of this modern trial where you, effectively you have a libel trial involving two celebrities at a cost estimated at around €2 million. Euro. But basically this libel trial brought over a social media post by someone claiming that their information had been link, uh, leaked from social media. So that in itself is very interesting. But there's no doubt of the interest in this trial. You, you know, you journalists queuing up here from early this morning and they really are from all different aspects as well. That's the really interesting part of this case. You have courts reporters covering this. You have media correspondents and media editors as well as general reporters. And it really is attracting those from all areas. Areas. And I think people watching this trial as well, you have those who are interested in football who, who may have followed, you know, Wayne Rooney or or uh, Jamie Vardy, but equally of those who are interested in that celebrity pop culture. And then you also have those interested in legal proceedings. So it kind of does cover a lot. Wayne Rooney himself is due to uh, take to the stand tomorrow um, in Colin Rooney's defence, obviously. Uh, he's been there every single day by her side. Uh, Jamie Vardy, however, conspicuous in his absence, some might say, Deborah. Yeah, he hasn't been seen at all since the beginning of these legal proceedings. And as you said, Wayne Rooney has been here, um, you know, attending court with Colleen, getting out of the car, sitting in court throughout the day and then and leaving with his wife again. We haven't seen anything from Jamie Vardy. I suppose Manny, it's been speculated that he is uh, Leicester's striker. They had a game, I think, last Wednesday after his wife uh, took the stand, giving her evidence. They played again 
yesterday. I think they may have played Watford. So, I mean, you, you know, you could argue that he's busy playing football. Wayne, as we know, is now a manager uh, for Derby County. Perhaps he has more uh, free time on his side or, or perhaps his, his wife needed him there. But, but it certainly doesn't... I think you might forget, actually, of course, that, you know, it's Rebecca Vardy is the plaintiff in this case. Um, some people may, may, in fact, forget that point. But she may be attending this case without her husband, but she's certainly very determined here as uh, she comes in and out of court each day. You can see that steely determination from her. She is the plaintiff and it is in fact Colleen Rooney who has to prove in this libel trial under England's libel laws uh, that her original accusation about Rebecca Vardy, that it was uh, truthful or that it was in the public interest. All right, we'll leave it there, Deborah Naylor, but I know you're going to be in London for the next couple of days covering this trial uh, for us, so I'm sure you'll keep us updated. Thanks, Deborah. Well, in other news today, another European country is looking to join NATO. Sweden is turning its back on years of neutrality and applying to join the alliance. Earlier, I spoke to news correspondent Chris Jones and I began by asking him about those applications and Russia's response. Well, that's right. First, we heard Finland were putting in that formal application to join the NATO alliance. Now we're hearing that Sweden wants to do the same. Both want to submit those applications to shore up security across the Nordic region. Now, as you can imagine, Vladimir Putin is not a big fan of this move. In fact, he spoke to uh, Finnish President Sauli Nanista on Saturday, in which he said that leaving military neutrality would be a mistake and that there would be consequences. He did also say, however, that there were no hostile intentions towards Finland. However, if they do join NATO and uh, NATO moves its military infrastructure into Finland, then it will be forced to act. But what those actions might be, we don't have a clear picture of exactly what that would be just yet. And he's not the only one who isn't happy by this proposal. Uh, the Turkish president has also been speaking out quite strongly. He's opposed to it too. Why? Well, that's exactly right. And this isn't going to be an easy process for Finland or Sweden. In fact, Sweden have their own demands. They uh, say that if they are to join NATO, they don't want any uh, nuclear uh, uh, weapons in its country or any NATO bases. But you're right, Turkey has also objected. That's been a member of NATO since 1952. So its voice really does count for a lot. Now, President Tayyip Erdogan has said uh, that he doesn't support Sweden moving into NATO because of its support for the so-called uh, Kurdish militant group, the PKK. In fact, he said that neither country has an open, clear stance against terrorist organisations. However, uh, NATO Secretary General uh, Jens Stoltenberg is confident that Finland, Sweden and Turkey can come to agreement and that uh, those countries can join NATO. And when they do, he says it will be an historic moment and a moment that shows that aggression does not pay. Chris Jones in Latvia. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you. Well, Harry McGee from the Irish Times is still uh, with me. Harry, where does this leave Ireland? We're quite isolated now in Europe, aren't we? Yeah, there are only three uh, EU countries that remain neutral, and Ireland is one of them. Now, we had an opinion poll in the Irish Times only about a month ago after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which showed a clear majority of Irish people still favoured military neutrality. But I think that attitudes towards neutrality are beginning to shift because for many years, you know, we trot out the concept of Irish neutrality, you know, like we'd belt out or on the vein without thinking too much about it. 
or what it, it actually meant. And when it's in the abstract or without a context, you know, it's something easy to kind of resort to. But when something happens that's very proximate uh, to our interests, I think that people will probably begin to reassess it. I'm not saying that people will move away from neutrality, but I think the, the, uh, the news that both Finland and Sweden have applied to join NATO will certainly set people thinking about our status in Europe and also our status in the world. I think... But if you can see countries that held on to their neutrality as closely as we did, like um, Sweden and Finland, if you can see them moving, it perhaps makes people think, well, perhaps we should consider changing our position too. Yeah, well, the reasons we became neutral uh, um, over uh, uh, 75 years ago uh, or 80 years ago are, are very different uh, to, to the, the reasons that kind of drive uh, our, our politics uh, today. I think one of the, the difficulties for us is uh, uh, NATO. I think if it was done in the context of European defence and if NATO didn't exist, I think it would be an easier decision for us maybe to move towards that, given that we're so uh, uh, invested uh, in Europe. But NATO, because of the American influence and because of other uh, uh, wars that NATO has campaigned abroad, uh, has complicated matters somewhat in relation to how people think about it. But I, I, I have no doubt uh, that as time moves on, that the majority who are in favour of neutrality will diminish over time. I'm not saying that it will disappear, but I think that that will be a different Jeez. mindset All in right. relation to our traditional uh, policy of neutrality. All right, we have to leave it there. Harry McGee, thank you for coming to us this evening. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. From all of the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.